So how should governments use intelligence in the midst of a public disturbance that seems to be getting out of control? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? a podcast about national security. For a Canadian, and I think for many around the world, what happened in January and February of this year, 2022, was most un-Canadian. The reputation we have of being a very quiet people, a very apologetic people, uh, a very middle-of-the-road people. The great Canadian joke, why did the Canadian cross the road? To get to the middle. And in January and February of this year, we had a mob, is the best way, I guess, to describe this, of people descend into Ottawa, the nation's capital, uh, park their trucks on Wellington Street, which is a street right in front of Parliament Hill, blare their horns 24 hours a day, block traffic, cause all kinds of mayhem in downtown Ottawa. And they were a ragtag bunch, a real dog's breakfast. They called themselves the Freedom Convoy. They're upset about COVID mandates. There were some anti-vaxxers in the crowd. I'm sure there's some conspiracy theorists, maybe even one or two people that might have crossed the radar of CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service where I work, or the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Out of Police, who may have had the possibility of thinking about using violence somewhere down the road. In any regard, this thing went on for weeks and it didn't seem to be going well. The police couldn't, didn't seem to be able to handle it very well. The government was beside itself trying to figure things out. And at the end of the day, the government brought in what's called the Emergencies Act, to essentially give the law enforcement uh, extra powers to clear this at some suspension of civil liberties. Again, very un-Canadian. A lot of people looked at Canada and said, what, you guys have that in your country too? We always thought you were such nice Canadians. To talk about this, and, and more importantly, to talk about the intelligence that was provided at the time to advise the government on what to do, I brought into the con- I want to bring into the conversation an old friend of mine, John Pyrick. Uh, John and I have uh, worked together for many, many years at, at CSIS, Canadian Security Intelligence Service. He is a former intelligence analyst. He is a, a, a trainer. He's tra- created a community-wide training program for the Privy Council Office, delivered courses all over the world. He's retired, but he's teaching part-time for the Justice Institute of British Columbia, and he tells me he's learning Spanish. So, John, bienvenido. <laughs> <laughs> Gracias, uh, Senor Phil. So, John, a little while back, when you were looking at this issue in terms of the declaration or rather the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and just for my listeners to give you a bit of context, the Emergencies Act is a piece of legislation that gives the government extraordinary powers. It really pisses off civil libertarians because it does trounce on people's rights. It's also sort of the successor to the War Measures Act. And the War Measures Act was last invoked in Canada in October of 1970, the so-called October Crisis, during terrorist attacks by the FLQ, a Quebec separatist group, by the current Prime Minister's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Now, John, there was some intelligence that went back and forth when this, uh, when the government was trying to decide what to do, and you did a very Canadian thing. You put in an ATIP request. ATIP is short for Access to Information and Privacy. It's a tool that citizens can use to get access to Canadian information, government information, uh, including intelligence. Um, sometimes the requests are met, sometimes they're not. What did the ATIP request teach you, John, about the intelligence that was provided to the Canadian government in January and February of this year with respect to the Freedom Convoy? It was um, it was very interesting to go through it, Phil. Um, I recall you and I were talking about it uh, at the time and wondering what sort of language was being used to describe um, the protest movement and uh, whether or not uh, it was inf- you know, sufficient to really sort of justify the actions the government was taking. 
Um, I, I was particularly interested in getting a hold of this material because of the teaching I do, and in particular, uh, the courses I teach on writing, uh, because there's a lot there that relates to uh, methodology and uh, the um, precision of language. So uh, I got back about eight different documents that were all uh, different threat assessments done in uh, late January, early February, before the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And to sum it up, uh, they were pretty consistent in uh, sort of uh, assessing that uh, a coordinated complex terrorist attack was unlikely uh, and that uh, opportunistic low-level violence was possible. Uh, All of them were pretty consistent in putting forward that message. All of them put the threat level at medium. you know, there were slight variations in the language, but that was essentially the message that ITAC, the Integrated uh, mm-hmm. Terrorism Assessment Center, was providing to the government and to other stakeholders. So just to remind my listeners, John, when you talk about the, the threat level being at medium, Canada has been at medium forever. Uh, if my listeners might recall that back in 2014, there were two terrorist attacks carried out two days apart in October of that year, one in Montreal, just outside of Montreal, one in Ottawa. One in Ottawa is much better known when Michael Zahapibo approached the, the National Cenotaph in downtown Ottawa. He killed Nathan Cirillo, Corporal Nathan Cirillo, who was on honor guard at the Cenotaph. He was unarmed. He killed him and then raced on a Parliament Hill with his shotgun and tried to enter the center block and was gunned down by, by parliamentary police. Even in the, in the wake of that attack, the needle didn't move from medium. So what the, the fact that we've got this uh, gridlock in downtown Ottawa, this mob, as I say, in you know blocking traffic making noise all that kind of thing some unsavory characters what does this suggest to you that from the intelligence agencies and for my listeners so itac the integrated terrorism assessment center is is part of CSIS, the Canadian security intelligence service although it takes people from all kinds of agencies across ottawa to have a sort of an integrated fusion center approach what does this suggest to you that even the intelligence agencies at the time didn't feel that what they were seeing through their intelligence gathering that we needed to start thinking about whether the threat would move from medium where it's been, like I said, it's been, it's been medium forever as far as I know in Canada. So you raise a good point there, Phil. And it's interesting to sort of speculate or, or hypothesize on what it would take to move the needle from medium mm-hmm. to high. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've never been privy to any of those conversations or read anything about that. Um, I would imagine, you know, it would have to be something fairly significant and very specific. Um, With respect to what was known at the time, though, I'd like to stress that, um, and and the ITAC documents do this as well, it was primarily based on open source reporting with some apparent uh, information coming from law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But the, the quality of information that they had at the time was not great. Um, you can imagine that as this movement sprung up, um, and because it was lawful advocacy and dissent, the service couldn't recruit human sources to monitor what was going on. So essentially anything that was being reported on this event, you know, was probably coming from open source information. And that, that's a fundamental limitation, I think, on, Mm -hmm. on good the information could be and, and, you know, how hard they could argue that there was, you know, a, a, a potential problem brewing. It's a very good point, John. I, I do know 
that so I left the service in 2015 and at the time from a counterterrorism perspective it was all jihadis all the time we we really didn't have any significant far right investigation for the simple reason we didn't have a significant far right problem that has obviously changed since since 2015 but you do raise a very good point that you know the service CSIS can only investigate threats to security Canada as defined in their legislation section 2 and as, as, you, as you rightly pointed out, this is lawful dissent. These people are making a point. You may, you may disagree with the point, but they have a charter right to make that point. And until that, the way in which you're making the point crosses that line of potential violence, law enforcement and security intelligence must be very, very careful to allow these wankers, which is what I call them, to have their say without limiting their charter rights as Canadians. I think people need to appreciate that, Phil. You know, it's a, a point that often gets lost in some of the more... Um, exuberant, you know, comments that, you know, essentially RCMP CSIS are, are going to be very, very cautious, very reticent to uh, approach, you know, topics like this. Uh, you know, it's uh, to, to, to whatever extent they, they monitor them, it, it's, it's going to go to the very high levels for authorization simply because of this concern about, you know, abridging uh, civil rights. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's, it's something that I think we're fortunate to have in Canada that, uh, you know, this is a, it's, it's, it's a territory that is, is extremely, you know, problematic. And, and as a result, there are lots of checks and balances to prevent, you know, anything, you know, untoward from, from inadvertently happening. And I would predict that, you know, the outcome of the inquiry will substantiate that. Mm-hmm. You're right. I think Canadians should appreciate, John, that, you know, when you work for security intelligence or law enforcement, especially nowadays, there's an assumption on the part of many of citizens that, you know, you guys are above the law, you do whatever you want, you run roughshod over the Constitution or, or over the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And in actual fact, we don't. Like you said, things had to get pretty bad for a CISA's investigation. Now, and now in fairness, the, the security service has a lower threshold investigation than law enforcement. We have reasonable grounds to suspect versus reasonable grounds to believe. But even in, in your time at CISA's and my time at CISA's, there was definite justification for at least initiating, in, initiating an investigation in the person's X, Y, or Z because of what we had found out. And then at the end of the day, as I tell people, most investigations didn't last long because it turned out there wasn't any there there, that these persons, people did not pose a threat. And rather than waste resources on them, you went on to somebody else. You certainly didn't, didn't sit on an investigation ad nauseum for the sake of investigating somebody. You don't have the resources to do that. And I think that CSIS is, is good in saying that, you know, we won't investigate you uh, unless we have very damn good reasons to do so. You know, I think you you put it well there, uh, Phil. You know, you have to look at something uh, if it's reported to you, but you know, you quickly move on if if there's, you know, just smoke and no fire. Uh, you've got a lot of things that you could be looking at, so you know, your resources are limited, and and at the end of the day, you have to prioritize. Um, so, I think that that's point is sometimes lost. Um, there was a journalist here in uh, BC a few years back who said that the service had wiretaps on, I think it was every Sikh in the province without <laughs> thinking that, you know, man, you know, who would be debriefing all those lines? That's a lot of wiretaps. You know, there's just no way you could do that, right? And, and, and no reason you would want to. So, you know, there has to be a, a note of uh, realism and practicality whenever people, you know, read or hear things and, and, they have to question whether or not, you know, uh, it's likely uh, given, you know, the, the priorities and other things that are, are going on. So anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's been an interesting exercise going through these documents. And what, what impressed me was the methodology. I thought ITAC followed best practices. Mm-hmm. You know, if you read them, 
Uh, they associate their terms of probability to numerical values. Uh, they define what they mean by different threat levels. They define what they mean by uh, group capabilities. They express a confidence level, and you know they're they're upfront about their assessment base, the sources they use, which is all the things you're supposed to do. In fact, if I was grading it, I'd give them an A. A for ITAC. Let us let's pursue that a bit, John. So I know that. The words that are used in intelligence assessments, because I used to write them when I was at CSIS, you're, you're very careful with what you say and how you say it, because you don't want to be misinterpreted. You don't want to say something to the government in such a way that it either causes them to ignore what you're trying to say or overreacts to it. So one of the debates that's been going on for quite some time in Canada, I don't know if it's the same in other countries, you may know more than I do, is the language used. And there's been a movement afoot, at least in Canada, um, that's been spread by some to rather than using words like probable, possible, likely, unlikely, very likely to use percentages. And I've always been puzzled by that because to me, a percentage indicates some kind of a mathematical function where you say, you know, you've got a hundred different things and you've, you're, you're sure that you've got 70 of that actually exist. Therefore, there's a 70% chance of that happening. Can you walk my listeners through the differences between the use of simple language like likely, unlikely, probable and the percentages that you're seeing in some of these reports? Sure. And, and I think you characterize it fa- uh, fairly in that there is this debate. Um, on one side, you have people that say that uh, numeric values give a false sense of precision and scientific, you know, to, to, to what is in essence a qualitative uh, decision or judgment. On the other side, you have people saying, well, um, terms like unlikely can be interpreted very broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, a famous story has to do with the Bay of Pigs. So um, after that uh, fiasco, there was an inquiry. And um, one of the things that came out was that when Kennedy inherited that operation from Johnson, um, he asked the Joint Chiefs for an assessment on the chances of success, and they said there was a fair chance of success. So Kennedy took that as being pretty good odds. Mm-hmm. After the fiasco and the review, it was discovered that by fair chance of success, the Joint chan- uh, Chiefs meant a uh, chance of one in three that the uh, invasion oh, wow. would succeed. So there was a huge discrepancy there. Had they used numbers, perhaps that invasion never would have happened. Interesting. I didn't realize that. That's a, that's a very interesting historical example. And yeah, so I think the, the, the debate will go on in terms of the use of, of la- and you're right. I mean, language, I mean, the, the linguist in me realizes that language not only change over time, but we all, we, we all have our own interpretation of what fair means, likely, etc. But let's go back to the actual intelligence that came out, John. And, uh, you know, I realize that you and I, there's no point in you and I being Monday morning quarterbacks on this because we weren't there. We didn't see the intelligence. We weren't in government to make decisions. But there was a report that came out around the time that the Emergency Act was invoked. And this is a comment made by Jody Thomas. Now, she's the, she's the national security advisor to the prime minister. And she said, and I quote, that there is no doubt that the organizers of the protests came to overthrow the government. That's a pretty serious accusation and a very alarming accusation. Okay, were actually so let me interrupt you. Uh, basically, that goes to intent. The, 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 the analyst in me immediately goes, okay, if that's their intent, what's their capability? Mm-hmm. No, that's a very good point. We always look at anybody can say anything. I would, I would love to become prime minister tomorrow. I have the intent of becoming prime minister tomorrow. The capability is next to zero. It is highly, highly unlikely or otherwise 0% that I'll become prime minister. Given the, I think, the 
discrepancy or the, shall we say, there seemed to be a, a lot of room between what the intelligence reports were saying and the government decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. I see that as, I would say, a, an overreaction to what the intelligence was saying. Now, fair enough. Governments make decisions on many things other than intelligence. I, I hope that the intelligence is used, although I, I'm a little bit skeptical that Canada has a very robust intelligence culture. So what do you say to these accusations that the government, in fact, went far beyond what it needed to do in its reaction to the convoy in late February of this year? So I, I think it's easy to make those kinds of uh, accusations in hindsight. And you really have to go back to the the time and uh you know the the, the mood and and the, the information that was available to the people in charge. I think it's easy to Monday morning quarterback this and say that you know there might have been an overreaction. But um, when you look at the Emergencies Act, um, what it talks about is a serious danger to health and safety. So I think what we're debating is whether or not what information was present at the time justified the idea that there was a serious danger. I, again, um, the use of language. What does serious mean to one person versus another? Right. Right. And, and certainly if, um, uh, if you're going back to that time, you can recall that, you know, there was a lot of, um, uh, concern because, uh, there, there didn't seem to be a lot of things being done to counter what was taking place. And, uh, there was a, a growing sense of unease about, uh, the protesters getting more and more organized, more and more entrenched. Uh, you know, this thing didn't seem to be headed in the right direction. Um, so, I think we, we have to step back and say, we don't know everything that the prime minister knew at the time. Um, it's really up to him to interpret what, you know, a serious danger constitutes. Um, and, you know, whatever opinion the intelligence community had about this group, you know, politicians are under no obligation to follow the advice of the intelligence community. So at the end of the day, it's, it's their judgment, not ours. Now, there's no question, John, that by late February, everyone in Ottawa was pretty sick and freaking tired of, of what was happening. The Wellington was blocked. Uh, these people were at a minimum rude. We heard reports about people urinating on the National Cenotaph. We heard about people going into the Byward Market, which is just down the street from, from Parliament Hill, you know, harassing people and basically being, you know, prime assholes uh, in downtown Ottawa. Yeah, again, very, very un-Canadian. Do you think, and again, this is an unfair question to ask you because, you know, we don't have the information necessary, but given the, the reporting at the time was very negative, Ottawans were sick and fed up of what was happening here. Was this perhaps as much, again, unfair question, was this perhaps as much a, an effort by the government to simply do something because it realized the public wanted something done? In other words, they, they were calling upon the government to do something rather than let this thing, as you say, they were becoming well entrenched and it did, there was no ending in sight. And, and people said, look, just, just fix this for us. Just fix this for us now. Yeah, I think uh, you're, you've got a good point there in terms of um, the, 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 the tail wagging the dog. You know, sometimes it's media reporting. I think that's more influential on politicians than intelligence reporting. And, uh, you know, I can imagine there was a great deal of pressure on them to act or to be seen to be acting. Um, in fact, uh, I think there's in more in your classic domain of, of um, uh, extremists, I think there's a guy that writes about security theater and the fact that a lot of the things that we end up doing are more for show than for you know, yeah. actual impact. Um, so, you know, I think there's an argument that could be uh, made that perhaps that was one of the motivations in uh, them taking the action that they did. But I think, um, you know, it's just speculation on our part, uh, what was going through their mind at the time. Um, 
I think there's some interesting echoes to bring up what you said earlier with this in the War Measures Act. Mm-hmm. So we know this. This was the first invocation of the Emergencies Act. I don't know. I don't. You probably know more about it than I do. What what year does the legislation date from? I think originally 1988, uh, okay. but it was then updated more recently. Okay. Okay. So as I said, you know, th- this very much was a replacement for the War Measures Act, and even the word War Measures Act, boy, that that you know that um, brings up a lot of terminology and imagery that I think people are necessarily a little bit worried about it. And again, the last time the War Measures Act was invoked was by Pierre Trudeau against the FLQ in 1970. And that was roundly criticized at the time as perhaps an overreaction. So this is the first time it's been invoked. Um, there's an inquiry coming Although to up. remind people, Phil, you know, the War Measures Act came at a time when there were bombings, yes. kidnappings, killings. killings. Yeah. So, oh, you know, there's certainly a lot to predicate uh, its enactment. Um, although in, in retrospect, there's been some research done in terms of what intelligence the RCMP was supplying with, uh, the government with at the time. And uh, a lot of it related to the sort of scale and scope of FLQ activities. And um, in retrospect, some people have suggested that the government did overreact, given that you know, the FLQ was a relatively small, uh, you know, disorganized group. Um in fact, I think by that point, they'd sort of split into different factions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the 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 benefit of hindsight is, you know, you, you sort Always. of can say that, you know, the, this was appropriate or not. But at the time, you know, you really have to think of the direction things were heading and, uh, you know, the, 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 the pressure that the government was under. And, and so I think, uh, you know, if you were sitting in that chair, would you mm-hmm. have made that call? Uh, you know, well, it's a difficult it, thing to say. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%, John. It's, I'm, I'm glad for you raised that point. But, you know, again, you think back, this is October of 1970. Uh, the FLQ had just kidnapped Pierre Laporte, whom they later killed. They had kidnapped James Cross, who was a British trade representative of Montreal. Uh, as you said, there have been hundreds of bombings uh, in Montreal over the better part of the 1960s. It's all discussed in, in my latest book, which I'll get back to later. And, and if you recall, the famous words by the Pierre Trudeau when, the, when he was asked by the media, what are you going to do? What His response was, just watch me. And it, and then they invoke the emergency, the War Measures Act. So we here in Canada, we're going to have an inquiry starting in September. Canada loves inquiries and, and royal commissions. We do it about four times a week, I think. But it's just a very Canadian thing to do. It is the first time that this has been used in, in you know this act. What do you think we've learned from this, John? And as you said, it, it, it is a piece of legislation. It, it's in the books. Uh, the government has the right to invoke it when it thinks it's necessary. Uh, what do you think we're going to learn about the, the Emergencies Act going forward? Well, I think going forward, there'll be a much more formal process uh, that will evolve uh, in triggering uh, the Emergencies Act. So I think, uh, you know, there'll be uh, sort of definitions uh, set and, and uh, you know, uh, legal interpretations and so forth to ensure that everything goes right down the, the middle of the pipe next time. And, and you know, it's as you would expect with new legislation, it's not until it actually gets tested by mm-hmm. events that, you know, it gets refined and amended and, uh, you know, things that were left vague are, are, are tightened up. So I, th- I think we'll see a lot of that. Um, but, you know, the, the fundamental issue of, of warning will still remain, you know, when, when the intelligence community provides warning to the government, what does it do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that issue is a fascinating one because there's lots of examples of warning failure where the government didn't pay attention. So mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, that, uh, and that goes back to, I think, to what you were saying earlier about our, our, our culture and the relationship between the intelligence community and the government and, and how that's working. And, and I think issues like this review will help sort of flesh some of that out. But I think those are deeper issues that sort of lie behind it. 
You've raised two things that I'll, I'll pick on just very briefly. One is that, you know, as even there are those that thought that this was very draconian in what the government did. I, I think, you know, this is Canada. This is not uh, Afghanistan or Kazakhstan, where their versions of the Emergencies Act, I'm pretty sure, would result in bodies in the streets because the, the law enforcement security intelligence would have no restrictions on what they're going to do. So let, let's let's keep this in, in, into perspective. And in terms of intelligence warning, as I and many others have said, you know, on the, on the topic of China, um, I remember former CSIS director Dick Fadden saying way back in the 2000s that we were very worried about Chinese interference in Canadian affairs, and we were we were largely ignored. The government just didn't seem to care, and as a consequence, China's been getting a pretty well free ride for the past twenty five years. So what? So what's on your agenda coming up, John? Maybe give my listeners a sense as to what you're up to, as well as um, how they can contact you, and in case they they want to follow some of the training you're giving. Well, my um, ongoing interest is on an aspect of intelligence analysis uh, involving what are called structured analytic techniques. Yes. So these are the set of approaches to analysis that uh, we use. And, um, you know, some listeners might recognize things like uh, the analysis of competing hypotheses, ACH is is one of them. So I'm involved in a study group where we're looking at all the research that's been done on the effectiveness of SATs. And we're uh, trying to sort of critique the studies to see, you know, whether or not their findings are uh, justifiable. So it's kind of a meta-study approach. And I think what we're sort of hoping to get to is uh, some definitive empirical approach to assessing the value of these um, SATs and when and where they're most effective. So that's kind of my ongoing uh, issue, probably for the next five years, I would think. (laughs) Wow, that's a very ambitious program. I I wish you luck with it because... If there's one thing in Canada that is uh, sorely missing as compared to our allies, especially the Americans, I'm not so, so, much, so much sure about the Brits, is they've, they've looked at intelligence nine ways to Sunday in terms of how to make it better. I'm not sure we've done it here in Canada. So uh, best of luck in, uh, in your efforts to do that. I appreciate it. There's, there's a lot of interesting research that's been done out there. Uh, and I think it's it's fascinating to try and take what's been learned and to apply it to our community. And and there's some interesting challenges. You know, how do you do it in a secure environment? How do you do it in an environment where, you know, it's, uh, the nature of the information you have is inherently uncertain? So there's there's a lot of interesting adaptations that we have to make to, to actually elevate the, the quality of our analysis. Exactly. John, listen, it's been great catching up with you, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and and looking at an issue that's got a lot of attention here in Canada. And I I think looking at it fairly, you know, we we discussed both sides of it. I think it's important to do that, to recognize there's lots that we know, but lots that we don't know. We'll see what happens with the inquiry that comes out. But I want to thank you for taking the time and coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure, Phil. That was my conversation with John Pyrick on the Freedom Convoy of this earlier on this year and the intelligence that led to it. So what did you think about the Trudeau government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act? Was it justified? Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email at borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you want to get more content, go to the website borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You get all the information free, all the podcasts such as these. Well, as quick hits, some some written material like Perspectives, the Global Terrorism This Week that comes out every Monday, and as well as a link to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present, available on my website, or if you're if you're into uh, ebooks, you can get it on Amazon Kindle. Love to hear you your feedback, your ideas for other podcasts. We'll talk again soon. Until then, take care. <laughs>